Dr. Scott Masson with our episode in Paideia today uh, with my colleague here, Dr. Bill Friesen. And we are looking at uh, the underworld here in the Odyssey. And I think we wanted to start off, Bill, you wanted to start off by reading us something? Yeah, this uh, comes out of book 11 here, uh, starts at uh, line 23, where Odysseus is attempting to enact the ritual uh, he has been instructed in uh, in order to have access to the dead, the realms of the dead, and the, the, the wisdom and the rites of passages that uh, are bound up in that. So I'll just begin reading here at 23. There Permides and Eurolocos held the victim fast, and I, drawing from beside my thigh my sharp sword, dug a pit of about a cubit in each direction and poured it full of drink offerings for all the dead. First, honey mixed with milk, and second pouring was a sweet wine, and the third, water, and over it all I sprinkled white barley. I promised many times to the strengthless heads of the perished dead that, returning to Ithaca, I would slaughter a barren cow, my best in my place, and pile the pyre with treasures, and to Tiresias apart would dedicate an all-black ram, the one conspicuous in all our sheep flocks. Now, when, with sacrifices and prayers, I had so entreated the hordes of the dead, I took the sheep and cut their throats over the pit, and the dark clouding blood ran in and the souls of the perished dead gathered in that place up out of Erebus, brides and young unmarried men and long-suffering elders, virgins tender and with the sorrows of young hearts upon them, and many fighting men killed in battle, stabbed with brazen spears, still carrying their bloody armor upon them. These came swarming around my pit from every direction with inhuman clamor and green fear took hold of me. Then I encouraged my companions and told them, taking the sheep that were lying by, slaughtered with the pitiless bronze, to skin these and burn them, and pray with, with the divinities to Hades, the powerful, and to revered Persephone. While I myself, drawing from beside my thigh, my sharp sword crouched there, but would not let the strengthless heads of the perished dead draw near to the blood until I had questioned Tiresias. So this is a really interesting passage, and it's the first enca encounter, at least in the Greek epic, uh, of the underworld. And we're going to—this is something we're going to see again and again in our study of the epic. We'll go from here to the Roman epic, and we'll look at uh, how it's presented there, and we'll see it uh, in various renditions through Milton, through uh, Dante, uh, through other figures. But it's important to note that this is, uh, this is at, the, at the nadir, it's at the bottom of a series of tests that Odysseus tells us that he had to undergo in order to come to the land of the Phaeacians, who he's, to whom he's telling this story. So book 11 falls right in the midst of his stories. He, so he's recounting to the Phaeacians how he came to go from Troy, where he started to be on their shores. Now remember, the Phaeacians are a sort of um, semi-divine place. It's a, it's a very mysterious realm, and it no longer exists after Odysseus gets out of there. Poseidon is so angry that he got out of there that they, the gods agree that this will never happen again, and the Phaeacians can never be visited because of what they did and so forth, and thwarting him. But th this is the series of, of uh, episodes in which he has to encounter supernatural danger. So he starts off by, uh, when he leaves Troy, he fights against the, the uh, Sicones. And these were, the Sicones were a group that, they're Greeks, but they allied themselves with the Trojans in, uh, back in the time of the Trojan War. So he has to get past them. Then he comes to the land of the Lotus Eaters, 
Then he comes to the Cyclops, whom we mentioned last time, Polyphemus. Then he comes to Aeolus, a place of, of, of winds. Then he comes to the Lastrogonians, who are um, cannibals. Then he comes to Circe, and Circe tells him that he has to go down to the underworld in order to find his way back home. Uh, having gone to Circe, he now finds himself in the underworld. And let me just talk about having come up down to the underworld, he then comes out of it, but that's not the end of the dangers. He then moves on to uh, encounter the sirens, the Scylla, uh, the cattle of the sun, uh, and Helios, the sun god, and they're right. told not to touch the, those cows, but then, of course, they slaughter them all, <laughs> crazily. <laughs> you know, as soon as uh, they're told it, that uh, they're not to touch the cattle, they're going to touch the cattle. Then, Yeah, of course. Uh, like a small child, don't touch that, and there you go. Uh, then they encounter Charybdis, and then finally they encounter Calypso. Now, at that point, when I say they, there, there's no one left but Odysseus. Now, he is on the island of Calypso, and that's the last place he is before, and we meet him first in book five, but this is the last uh, threat that he faces before he finds himself in front of the Phaeacians. And then you might ask what the threat is. There is no physical threat, unlike the other ones, and there's no real danger to him. The threat is that um, he will be forever hidden from the world, that he will gain immortality, yet without glory. That's right. What, maybe then what is being threatened here is his status as hero. Yes. Because this is the case which is uh, under question throughout the entire length of the Odyssey. If, uh, is he a hero? And if he is a hero, of what nature is that hero? And how does he differ from other heroes in, in the Greek imagination? And, and, and when I say he doesn't have fame, it's not quite accurate. He is already famous because we even saw that back in uh, the Telemachy. They're already talking about the famous Odysseus. He's yeah. well known everywhere. Even in the underworld, they know of Odysseus's fame. But what has not yet happened is the man has not, the man and the fame have not yet united. So until he returns home, he doesn't really receive the, receive the benefits of his fame. And that's interesting because when we compare and contrast him with Achilles, who's go, he's going to meet in the underworld, who has fame and yet does not return home. And, and so that those two are juxtaposed there. And that's, that's an interesting comparison there. This ties in also to a couple of other things we've been previously discussing because until Odysseus returns to Ithaca, he cannot receive the benefits of the glory he has won at such great cost here. And remember in the realm of the dead, you're not in a position usually to enjoy the glory of the Kleos that you have acquired over your life. So if you don't enjoy it during your lifetime while living, then you've missed out. So here it is absolutely imperative that he reap the benefits of his heroism by living to make it back to Ithaca where he can sort of draw his great uh, heroic saga to a close and enjoy the fruits thereof. Yeah. That's what we see him doing at the end to some extent, albeit mixed with great sorrow of a very complex nature. So he goes down, and as you see, say, he, he meets this figure, Tiresias, to whom he offers this blood sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Very specific. It's a black ram, and its blood is mixed with various things. Uh, I want to talk about this weird figure of Tiresias, because this is a figure we're going to meet in the tragedy as well. Yeah. Uh, Tiresias is the, the central figure, a prophet we meet in, in Thebes. You know, he will be the, the, a central figure for Oedipus to meet in order to solve the mystery of the Sphinx and so forth and, and the mystery of his own being. But here we meet him in the underworld 
And I want to say something about this figure because he's a, he is a really thoroughly strange figure. And why is he why is he there? And who is he? So Tiresias is. It's almost difficult to say because there are so many myths related to him. I think there are something like eighteen different myths, and different attributes are connected to different myths. But and we'll have fragments and and bits of most of those myths as well. So it's it's as it were through a glass darkly that even that we're seeing these eighteen different strands and how they tie together, if they tie together, and what their sources were. Oftentimes we simply don't know. But in all of them, he is he's blind. Uh, he's also gifted with prophecy and he's also gifted with an extraordinarily long life and there are various explanations for why these things are and almost the source of his wisdom is the fact that he's an androgynous figure he has experienced both uh, male and female identity um, one of the accounts says that he was transformed into woman by Hera when he struck two snakes with a stick and he thereby became a priestess of Hera and served him as a woman and not only served him as a woman, but had children from him, uh, that marriage. And then he encountered another series of copulating snakes and he didn't strike them and then he was turned back into a man. So that's one of the accounts of, of his androgyny. Um, and by the way, the turning him into a female was a punishment uh, in Hera's understanding. Now, don't know, I, I have no idea why Hera would be angry about him striking copulating snakes or why he'd be punished for it. That's, all these things are, are, are told and they're not explained. So that's rec recorded in, in lost lines of Hesiod. They're not in Hesiod. They're mentioned by other, other writers that they were in Hesiod. We don't have those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, in other accounts, um, there's a dispute between Hera and Zeus over which one of the two, the male or the female, enjoys the act of sex more. Zeus maintains that it's the female. Hera maintains that it's the male. The uh, verdict of Tiresias is that the female in, enjoys it 10 times more, for which <laughs> he is punished by Hera, who's angry with that outcome and, and struck with blindness. And he's rewarded, however, with a very happy Zeus uh, with, with the gift of prophecy and the gift of long life seven times. So those, sort of, so those things are lying in the background. But what is, is of interest to me, and that we don't need to get caught up into that, is that he is blind, prophetic, and androgynous. And the androgyny of this strange figure, this interstitial figure, this sort of where does he belong in the, in the great scheme of things, is common in, uh, in many ancient religions. And even modern religions, as an anthropological point, the, the shaman figure, uh, as you pointed out earlier, is somebody who is oftentimes an extremely uh, androgynous individual. They're not strongly gendered. Uh, and they oftentimes occupy a strange space, like outside of the community, outside of what we would call the polis in this case here. Uh, and uh, people would come to them at a certain point in their life for matters of transition. So it's this sense of transition, this sort of interstitial movement between two clearly defined places, states, things, uh, which I think is, is informing a lot of stuff that's happening here. We also see a lot of conflation uh, of roles when it comes to this. The, a lot of people will recognize the intertwining snakes as uh, an aspect uh, of Zeus's iconography. Um, not Zeus, sorry, Apollo's iconography. Apollo, yeah. Yes, and Apollo, of course, is also the god of prophecy, prophecy. later on, and he's also the god of poetry. 
this intertwining of poetry and prophecy we'll see uh, as a, a strand, a notion which travels down the ages uh, throughout the, the Greek period and then into the Roman period as well. A lot of the words for poet conflate with prophet uh, and there's a strong sense that what they're doing is in many ways similar and the sources from which they're doing it are similar, the rituals around it are similar. Uh, it's not clear where the prophet ends and the poet begins in ancient literature. Tiresias is this powerful prophet figure, and why Zeus should be giving him prophecy rather than Apollo is, you know, it's, it's a bit curious, if I'm honest. It is curious. The other thing that's, uh, all of that, what we just said about Tiresias and his androgyny and all those backstories, they are not in Homer. That is background information. It's, I don't know if it's helpful or not. It's interesting. It's very Here, likely though the original audience would have been well aware of that's, many, if not That's my the, point. Yes. Yeah, and, and so it's helpful when you're reading these things to have a mm -hmm. sense of what you're encountering and why this is important. So as you say, it's this figure that lives in the upper world, but also in the underworld. He seems to be between the gods and men. He's a figure of wisdom. He's a figure of prophecy. He's a figure of androgyny. We're not exactly sure all of the things that he uh, represents in, in some ways, but he, he does seem to usher. He, he's the place that the the witch Circe sends him to precisely to this figure in order to encounter the, to receive the wisdom mm -hmm. that he needs to get back home. But having received the wisdom, he goes back to Circe and Circe tells him everything that he just learned from Tiresias. So it doesn't sound like he even needed to do this. It's almost like a rite of passage that yeah. he should go down to the underworld. And this, I and, think, is why that shaman analogy is particularly helpful. There, there's something the hero Odysseus is undergoing when he goes into the underworld, which is not merely the practical acquisition of knowledge or wisdom or anything like that. There's, there's something else that is happening here that transforms him in a fundamental sense uh, as, as a man, as a hero, uh, as all these things. And that is that he goes down to the realm of the dead and comes up from them. And there's only one uh, other figure in the, the Greek world that does this, and that is Heracles, whom he meets in yes. the underworld here uh, and speaks to. And so that's interesting as well. And that's, that's part of his particular mark of epic heroism is that he not only goes down to the realm of the dead, but he rises from it, which is not something that Achilles does. And interestingly, in, at least in later iterations, we know uh, that Heracles uh, undergoes an apotheosis whereby he is included amongst the gods high up in Olympus. Whereas we know at the end of the day, Odysseus will die and go down to this realm of Hades here, which he is just visiting at this point. So there's, a, there's an interesting juxtaposition there, though I'm not sure the original audience would have been uh, aware of that. But that's, all of those things are interesting. And, uh, and then this becomes a feature of epic, the epic thereafter, that a hero in an epic narrative will go down to the realm of the dead and will, will rise from it. And that, that's significant. So we don't, we don't find that in the Iliad, but we do find it in the Odyssey. And thereafter, it becomes a mark of every epic. Yes, this is the foundational journey to the, journey to the dead narrative in the West. Uh, yeah. So many things that are happening here become the catalyst for large, eloquent develops in that style or genre of narrative in the uh, upcoming 2,800 years. Another thing we should perhaps mention here, there's, like I said, there's a lot of features that, that, that occur here. We have uh, a very elaborate ritual by which one enters the realm of the dead. Virgil will play off of this with a golden bow and all that stuff. 
uh, later on, we're going to see Dante do something really quite brilliant with it. He's, he takes that uh, situation and it turns out that he needs to encounter people and go particular places and get particular wisdom, even to start the journey through the realm of the supernatural, for lack of a better word. So we've got that. We've got uh, the dead, of course, and we have a bit of a pageant play as one famous figure after another goes past from the realm of the dead. Uh, in more modern times, uh, we find sadly such ignorance about this tradition of journeys to the dead, the literary treatment of the journey to, uh, to the realm of the dead, that we have uh, science fiction genres which style themselves as being able to do this, and they have no idea that there are many famous writers who have gone before and done, uh, done this kind of thing already. The most uh, prominent of these genres is called Bangsian science fiction. It's about somebody who has a houseboat on the sticks, which is a, which is a novel notion, I'll grant you, uh, but still. <laughs> Good play to go on, place to yeah. go on holiday. That's right, go for a cruise. The, the last thing I'll mention on this front as kind of a uh, foundational element is, it was a King Minos, I believe, is uh, down in the realm of the dead as well. And he's being asked, this is very ambiguous, and I, you know, it, it's to me a very interesting passage. He's being asked by the dead who, you know, within a few lines of here are said to be voiceless, but nevertheless, he is being asked by the dead to pass judgment. Yes, he is called the judge of the dead, but he's also being asked to pass judgment. Yes. So what is he judging? Is Are, are they virtues? Are they deeds? Are they bloodlines and nobility? Uh, what, what exactly is being judged? Uh, what are the ramifications of him judging? Are there punishments? Are there places? Uh, we know none of this. I mean, I'm just speculating here. In uh, in Homer's day, the judge is also the king. The king is the judge. One of Odysseus's problems is that in his absence, his land has become lawless. It has no one to judge and punish malefactors. Right. And so there, it's almost like the, the, the realm of the dead is like life above the ground. So they're still, they're still carrying on. It's just a, a bloodless and a lifeless and a unsatisfactory form of life. Mm -hmm. um, and it sounds like they're still, they still require a king. And so Minos, who's the judge, is a sort of a king of the underworld, even though he's not, but he's not the god of the underworld, but he does seem to be like a king. Which is curious because the god should be in some sense as the king of the underworld. So why is, why is that not happening? Later on, when we come to the Aeneid, we're going to encounter um, the figure of Radamantus, who very explicitly is judging the virtues and the evils yes. of those who come before him and punishing them accordingly in very clear, categorical and articulated terms. Yeah, and I think when we come to the Aeneid, we'll, that will give us a great deal of, uh, that's a good discussion point, because here in the Odyssey, we don't see bad guys. There, there aren't bad men there. They're not being punished. There, there isn't, uh, this is the realm of the dead. All, everyone goes there, whether they're a hero or anyone else. Now, we're only told about the heroes. So when Odysseus goes down there, we're not told about any other figures, but we do meet various famous figures. So we meet Alcanuus there, we meet Agamemnon, we meet Achilles, we meet Ajax. So his compatriots, the most famous of them, he speaks to them and sees them. He also sees his mother. He also sees uh, Elpinor, who uh, fell off the roof of, is it Circe, I think, and broke his neck and lay unburied So that, and, and begs Odysseus to go back and bury him before, so that he can get where he needs to go which is the other side of the where the dead belong yeah i mean curiously his purpose in in begging to be buried is so that he can cease his his shade can cease its wandering ways 
uh, and end up in the realm of the dead. But of course, Achilles makes it perfectly clear in the same book of the Odyssey that the realm of the dead is profoundly unsatisfying. It's this is this is a terrible place to be and in which to find oneself. So exactly why Elpenor wants to quit his wanderings and get to the place which won't sat, uh, satisfy is hard to say. There are a lot of inconsistencies here. No, it's almost like an instinct, right? He, he has to go there, but he doesn't know why. And this is another thing about, I mean, the amorality of the Greek afterlife is, is one of his key features. And it ties into what you just said, which is that uh, the whether you were a great man or you were the, the lowest person on the social uh, totem pole, it doesn't matter. Your reward is always the same. You end up in the realm of the dead. And I think that that does speak very much to the crisis, the moral crisis, the spiritual crisis, the artistic crisis of the Greek mind. And it, it will haunt Greek literature throughout. And we're going to come back and talk maybe a little bit more about that when we talk about Greek drama. But uh, just to signal it for now here in this text. So he also encounters Agamemnon. And Agamemnon was, of course, the uh, leader of the Achaeans. And Agamemnon recounts the same story that we had heard Zeus and the Olympian gods uh, recounting, which is the story of his return and his betrayal by his wife, Clytemnestra, and Aegisthus, and so forth. And he tells Odysseus this in order to warn him that when he goes home, he'd better watch out. Now, he says that, it, that his wife is different than Clytemnestra, but all the same, don't trust women, basically. But that's part of his advice there, and, and he keeps on hearing the same advice, that he needs to be uh, careful when he goes home, and, the, and Athena will give him the same advice. You can't go home um, as if you were, I mean, you have to go in, in incognito, basically. Uh, and then he comes across Achilles, and Achilles, he tries to praise Achilles and says, wow, um, when you, while you were alive, the army honored you like a god, and now you're here and you rule the dead with might. Isn't this yeah. great? And Achilles <laughs> just shuts like, him down. Let me like for the second time. Let me stop you right there, <laughs> Odysseus. You know, I I know you. You always are, are full of blandishments. You talk. You say one thing in your mouth and you hide another behind your in, in your heart. I'd rather be a hired hand back on earth or a slave uh, behind a farmer slaving away for some poor dirt farmer uh, than be the lord of all the withered dead. This is a terrible place yeah. to be. Stop talking nonsense. So it's a ringing indictment of the heroism dynamic. This is the thing that drives Odysseus out from you know, uh, his time, as you mentioned, with Calypso. He wants to actually realize the fruits of his heroism, on the other hand. So it seems that on the key issues, especially around issues around heroism, Achilles and Odysseus will never agree. And so you hear, have here again that, that, uh, that Greek love for debate. Achilles holds one view on heroism. Odysseus clearly holds another. They've yeah. both got talking points, and the talking points uh, uh, weave together and counter each other or, or fortify each other. But the bottom line is this is a debate waiting to happen amongst the audience after they... Uh, listen to this exchange between these two men yet again. So yet again. And Odysseus, Achilles and Odysseus, Achilles and Odysseus, and there you are. So, so but, there, but there are no villains. We're not told of any villains. There's no um, bad guys being punished there. In fact, there is no punishment for the dead, it seems, other than uh, the dead who are not uh, men, but rather titans. Mm -hmm. And they come towards the, right towards the conclusion of Book 11, we're told about three titans. We're told about Titios, we're told about Tantalus, and we're told about Sisyphus. And all of them are figures that are mentioned in later uh, epics uh, as figures of the underworld. But um, So these were the earth gods who rebelled against the 
uh, Olympian, the sky gods, mm-hmm. and their punishment is to be thrown down with in the realm of, of men. So to be, be treated beneath their dignity as gods. They're- That's right. And this comes out of a wider mythological tradition uh, amongst the Greeks where, of course, you have one of the great battles at the beginning where Python, the, the great monster, is thrown down and he's thrown down into the realm of the dead. And now we find these people here thrown down into the realm of the dead being punished in the realm of the dead but punished is you know it's a word that can be misleading i think because this is not an act however misguided of justice this one gets very clear sense that this no. is an act of vengeance yes justice uh the romans of course are going to make a very keen distinction between those two things though they're also very big in their own way on vengeance but they're also obsessed with justice whereas you do not encounter that here there's there's a, a greek ambivalence towards uh, why these people are suffering as they do. And the important thing is that they have dared to confront the gods and they've ended up here in great agony for the rest of eternity, one presumes. Yeah, and so, I mean, the, the, the recounting of these punishments is quite, quite lurid, actually. So, uh, so Titius, yeah, he's lying on the earth, stretched like, like Prometheus will be in the, in the Roman yeah. rendition. Yes. And he's, his, his liver is being eaten by two vultures, and then it regrows, and then he suffers the same fate uh, eternally. And Tantalus is in agony. He's, he's standing in a pool of water up to his chin, but he can't take a drink. And there's, there's, there's the grapes above him, which always rise out of reach as soon as he reaches for them. So thirst and hunger forever for all eternity tantalize him if you will. tantalizing and then sisyphus rolling the the stone up and then it rolls back down so eternal laboring without any um, satisfaction from his labor so these are forms of of simply punishment and there's no justice in it it is as you say simply punishment so that those are interesting things about the greek underworld and these these three figures and their punishment have become watchwords in western mythology um, yep. everybody knows the story of the of these individuals of course the greeks were keenly aware that uh on just sort of a side note here, that the liver was a particularly painful organ to have injured. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, the Greeks uh, in Athens made it a, a form of execution for the most uh, loathed of, of criminals or offenders, where they would stab you in the liver with an iron spike and you would slowly die an agonizing death. So this was something that was quick to the, the Greek imagination. How do you always know details like that, Bill? Oh, I've got a lot of these. I have got a lot of these. We'll get into those presently. Just wait for them. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Stay on your good side. Um, <laughs> and then finally encounters Heracles. And this is, uh, or rather the phantom of Heracles. So this is what is different. Heracles is a phantom yes, because he himself is with the gods, That's as you right. said. Mm-hmm. But, but the phantom of Heracles is down there. And as he moves, uh, there's a clamor of the dead behind him as if birds are flying off in terror and he looks like midnight himself. So this is a really strange discussion yeah. uh, of, of Heracles and, and Heracles then addresses him uh, and, and speaks to him and tells him that uh, how, how poor he is and, and, and mentions the similarity in their two fates um, and then directs him back up above the, uh, above the realm of, of the dead. Yeah. So, we won't discuss it here, but of course there comes out uh, clearly a, a Greek tradition, largely lost, of Heracles in the underworld. One has to remember here that this fits into a family of tales on this sort of light motif, which have now largely been lost. Yeah. So oftentimes, later writers and later dramatists are, to use modern language, riffing off of this light motif, uh, and we're not seeing the connections. But we know yeah. that there, there, there were connections to be made that very likely the original audiences would have found quite interesting. So having addressed him, Heracles then tells him 
he goes back to the house of Hades where he lives, or at least the, the, uh, the phantom of Heracles. And then Odysseus is left on his own and he longs to meet Theseus, for instance, another great hero who went down to the underworld, but he's afraid that Persephone will arise from Hades' depths and send the pale head of the monster Gorgon. Mm. And so he then scoots out and gets out of the underworld. Now that, again, the Gorgon is a figure that's mentioned in, in later epics as this hideous figure. Here it's, only, it's the only figure that is monstrous in the whole underworld of, of Homer. Whereas when we come to the Aeneid, we'll find all sorts of monsters. Yes, absolutely. So in that sense, the, the Romans again had made a serious advance on the Greeks in notions of monstrousness and how this connects with notions of evil and, and things like that, which you don't encounter quite interestingly in the Odyssey. These things are all absent. And of course, one of the big dangers as a modern reader is to exert the discipline and the faithfulness as a reader, not to impose either explicitly or uh, subconsciously uh, these notions on a text which doesn't support or which can't support them. So is the Gorgon even a monster properly speaking? We might say so, would they? Uh, they might come up with a different... Not, not quite sure. And again, the monsters Odysseus has encountered were above the world, in, the, exactly. in the world above. Exactly. These are, these are things in the realm of the living, which can send you to Hades, quite certainly, and indeed do. They, they end up wiping out his entire crew in spite of his desperate attempts to save them. Yeah. Uh, but they themselves are not from the realm of the dead itself, whereas later on that changes. Uh, do we want to talk about Elpener? What about Elpener? Go ahead. Yeah, Elpener, is, he becomes this figure again that, again, just to make a quick connection between this and the Aeneid, he's somebody who uh, sets up a discussion that Virgil has later on. And Virgil makes some of the same arguments that, uh, uh, that uh, are made in the Odyssey. But we have to remember that the Odyssey is potentially also playing off of a similar sort of discussion around the desecration of the dead and the desecration of uh, Hector that we encountered in the Iliad. So the point here to me is that, again, on this level, all these texts are speaking back to one another. And if you miss that point, you're going to miss a large part of the enjoyment that's to be derived from uh, coming at these classical texts. I guess there's something being said about even though they go down to the underworld and they are shades, there isn't a full-blooded anthropology there as we would understand it. So, but no. there is a sense of the sanctity of the body. The body seems to matter while at the same time, and it's not fully developed here. We'll see it more when we come to Virgil's Aeneid. There's a sense that the soul is the true self, and that is a disembodied self. I mean, we, we have fundamental differences that have been discussed uh, elsewhere by very knowledgeable writers between, you know, later notions of the soul, the anima, as the, the, the Romans would call as it. The Romans as a, yeah, and the psyche here that we encounter amongst yeah. the Greeks. These are not the same thing. The Romans also much more categorically define the nature and the scope of the self and its worth. Whereas for the Greeks, we have to remember that yeah, it's right. You, they don't have a developed sort of anthropology of, of what's going on here. They don't have a clear cosmological view. Their sense of these things is in one sense, um, more vigorous in that it's, it's, it's very organic. It is experienced. Just like Theresius in his knowledge about, you know, uh, relations between men and women and stuff like this. The Theresius is not abstract knowledge, he's lived it. They're not developing something fundamentally new, uh, in yeah. radically new. Good. 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 Thank you. Thank you.